The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the youngest person to ever be on this show, The Moment, and is somebody who's at even though you've been at this a while, you're 23, right? 24 now. Congratulations. For a month. Happy yeah. birthday. Thank you. Uh, you've been making music for a long time. Will is the lead singer, songwriter, producer, although I know you didn't produce the new album by, all by yourself, right. but of my favorite band, Car Seat Headrest. Oh, thank you. Which, do you consider it a, ban- a band? I mean, it is, yeah, it's I mean, always been just is. you, right? It's, I guess I call it a project overall, um, but... In its current form, it's definitely a band. It's me and three other guys and has been for the past, over a year now. So it's a band. So yeah, you, you were asking me, uh, but you do write everything and, and in the initial yeah, original currently. form, you play everything. That's you? right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Teens of Denial, which is our newest record, I had everything demoed out beforehand and then took it in to sort of be workshopped by the band before recording. I wasn't planning it. Did the two arrangements change? Did arrangements change when that happened at all? Or is it just, yeah, I mean, they, amplified? They, they absolutely filled in their, their own parts. And there were parts on the record where, you know, after it was finished, I'd listen to it and kind of hear it for the first time. And I was, it, it, I was like, wow, that's never happened with a Carsey address record for me before. So that was cool. And there were, there were definitely parts that changed once we were playing them as a band. And, uh, the song Cosmic Hero actually kind of developed as a band. That was one that I hadn't demoed out beforehand, but we worked out together. Did you like that? Yeah. Um, it was, was it scary? A li- I mean, it was more of sort of, uh, taking a leap forward into the studio process because, you know, we were, we were doing the first session and, you know, I was just hearing Steve like work on drum parts for those songs. And it's like, this sounds so cool. You know, I had never been in a studio environment before. I'd never listened to my music being created on these nice speakers in a nice room for it. And it's, you know, I, I regretted in a way that the album was already so done at the time. Cause I, at the time I had demoed everything out. So I, I was like, let's do one thing where we just, we don't really have a plan and we just record it so that it sounds good. You know, it's not all thought out beforehand. And so how did you play the tune to them? Just um, on, a, on acoustic or on a key? Like, what did you yeah, do? I mean, at the time, I just had the four chord progression, four chord chord progression that that is most of the song. And um, we just jammed on it um, in our practice space before the next session. And then I was like, well, maybe we can structure it a little bit. And, sure. I, and I did end up taking it home and I demoed it out. And then we, we messed with it some more. And then by the time we went into the studio again, we, we had a certain shape that we took it in. Oh, that's so interesting that, that you then had to sort of retake ownership o- yeah. over it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, this is kind of the role I fall into within the band. I mean, the, the guys are very good at, at sort of following my lead. Um, you know, sometimes you have a lineup where, where people want to go their own directions, but the guys are always kind of just looking to me like, you know, what, what should we do here? And it, I, I always have suggestions. Well, so it's, it's, your cre- <laughs> I mean, it's your creative right. vision. So right before we started, you asked me how I right. came how, across how you heard the, the, the ragger. So, uh, what happened and was I was on Twitter. I was, it was over July 4th weekend. And I guess the thing came out right around then, uh, in, in the physical form, like right, yeah. a week later, like, um, stuff had leaked and had uh, come out digitally, digitally, but it hadn't yet really 
widely, widely penetrated. It was just starting to. And I was looking around for new music that would feel like, well, I wrote this tweet and it just said, um, which bands and or artists playing aggressive, beautiful, alternative music are one, really smart, and two, really mean it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you saw getting pinged that day. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't connect. That was me who made Mm -hmm. that tweet or whatever. But so then all these people started responding, you know, with tons of different bands. But the band that got, that I got hit over the head with the most was Car Seat Headrest and Teens in Denial, that album. And so I I grabbed a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Rival Sons and uh, Beach Slang and Mitski and yours. And I like loaded them all into the, my iPhone and went for like a long drive. And I, so I didn't know what was what out of those things. And I, I think there's really great stuff about all those artists. Um, I think Mitski's like incredible, mm-hmm. but your album basically became the only thing I listened to for two and a half months. <laughs> and I became like a crazy, insane prosthetizer for it. Nice. Because to me, like you write about the stuff you write about with the same kind of, and, and a lot of the time, dark subject matter, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, how to transcend your, your own limitations, recognizing your limitations, recognizing what you could be, and then not being able to bridge the gap in that frustrating feeling but you write about this kind of joyous abandon that david foster wallace did and then i also noticed that you'd use these metafictional devices in a similar way where you're like recognizing the construct of the song within a song and that stuff's all packaged in these incredibly as i say joyous and anthemic tracks i mean how conscious consciously are you creating all of that and doing all that how aware yeah i mean it's all pretty conscious i approach it i guess you know i consider myself sort of a a student of art you know i I went to college for english and it's it's all stuff that i think about a lot when i'm creating and um you know there are definitely artists who sort of do you know they just let them their inner selves unfold and it all seems very stream of consciousness and unintentional but I'm not one of those artists. I I kind of, you know, whenever a feeling comes out, I have to analyze it and pick it over before it goes into my art. And uh, we end up with a very uh, studied work at the end of it. When you're actually in the process of creating, in the first bursts of inspiration, whether it's like a line that occurs to you or a musical line, Will you let yourself experience a period of abandon before reining it in and trying to figure out what it is? I mean, there will be periods where when I have an idea, there is a sense of abandon to it and I'll just let myself go. But it won't have any sort of physically creative uh, embodiment to it at the time. It'll all be mental, you know, and, and usually it's just like, maybe right before I'm supposed to go to bed, I'll I'll have a thought and then it'll just lead me down a, a, a path and I'll be up half the night just thinking about it. And then, you know, in the morning when when I'm much less rested than I, I should be, I'll, I'll write it down and try and get the best of it out. And, you know, so it, it just sort of takes a natural form of the sense of abandonment is is reined in by just my physical process of getting it down into, you know, physical artwork. So you don't even go to a guitar or keyboard until you really understand what it is you want to say. And also like what 
construction would fit the thing you want to say like uh, a rough, is there a rough structure in your in your head yeah um, a rough animation of the uh, you know the way you're going to animate it yeah i mean there's all i'm a fairly structural guy you know i'll always be working when i work with music i'm pretty much always working with a mind towards the album format and so part of having an idea is seeing how it works within that context and that's when i get excited when i see that it can work you know and, and i'm talking about ideas you know i'm I, i'm not talking about it as a usual musician would i guess because the ideas here are, are, are not really related to music but there's always you know you're talking about purpose right purpose and and concepts i guess for the record um and you know those express themselves most clearly in lyrics um and uh, I'm not not a leading question, but and in the juxtaposition of the lyrics and the music, right? Yeah. Or no? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting question. You know, I, I juxtapose lyrics more with each other, I think, than with the music. The music, it, it's almost an entirely separate process and up until the point where I, I put them together. I mean, I guess maybe that's obvious to say, but, you know, the music comes from a, a very different place I, I try not to write music to lyrics and i try not to li- write lyrics to music usually the music comes from just it does come from me just jamming out on guitar or whatever and those are you know those are more kind of quiet moments i think there's not such a sense of abandon when i'm writing music it's just about finding stuff that works and and playing around with it and seeing uh seeing if i can make something out of it the music they both come so slowly i feel like that it's hard to uh to say there's a sense of abandoning the music especially because i I just remember recording demos of the songs that were on teens of denial that had 20 percent of the music and then 50 percent of the music and then you know it took so long before it was all there even though so you would have had the lyric even though you're not writing you're not writing music and lyrics at the same time you say you're not writing the music to fit a lyric. So what happens? You write some piece of a song's music and then figure out which of these lyrics could work with this and then kind of retrofit each thing? Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. Dude, you're, you're sounding like a sane Phil Spector. <laughs> like people don't <laughs> yeah, reference I mean, Phil Spector that much when they talk about you. But I think there's a heavy similarity. I, don't I, shoot anybody. I appreciate anybody. that. I, I won't shoot anybody, but you know, Phil Spector at his peak was – a force to reckon with and um i do kind of consider myself more of an arranger than anything else you know the the ideas themselves that i start with are fairly simple and it's just once a basic structure is there that's where i kind of shine i think is is filling those spaces out in a way that is interesting and that makes me more more like phil specter more like a producer than necessarily as just sort of a, a savant composer like Brian Wilson or whatever. Right. I mean, there's a Beach Boys influence clearly in some of what, what you do, not just because of the lyric right. that before I dove into all the lyrics and I saw that, but I mean, you, one hears it in some of the way you use harmony, but, um, and in some of the way you use the drums too, you can feel that mm-hmm. there's somebody who's listened to a lot of the Beach Boys at a certain time. Mm-hmm. But in, in thinking about the idea of purpose and construction of, of all this who what is the platonic ideal of the listener or what was in your head because i know it's changed i want to what was in your head right in the beginning you're and we'll t- i want to tell your story a little because you're so young that i think a lot of listeners mm-hmm. don't really know the whole story 
most of the time people are much further along by the time, you know, when they, when I'm, I'm talking to them cause I'm an old fuck. So they're like <laughs> all old also, but, um, who was the platonic ideal of the audience then? I guess, uh, someone pretty close to myself as far as, you know, someone who, who, who cares about art, who cares about music in a way that goes beyond just, you know, putting it on to have a good time, who, who likes to dig into records and, find deeper meanings within them and it's it's interesting because teens of denial i think represents an effort to uh, in a basic level be accessible to as many people as possible I you know that. i think yeah. my my ideal when i'm making an album is to make it work on all levels as far as you know the people who do just want a good time they can put it on and it's fun and bright and happy sounding at points at least um and well that's the joy part right there's joy in it and you know that and that can happen and i can get my songs on the radio and make a lot of money and then i want to do that without sacrificing any of the deeper part of it um and i think that is possible that that is my goal to make commercial art that is also has that depth to it that i that i ask for in my art and in the art that i consume that I also am making art that runs that deep and that can be accessed on that level by people who need it. So you're happy, you want the deconstructionists, but uh, you'll also take the frat kids? Right. That's fine. Yeah, they every- don't get you, the frat kids don't get you annoyed. Um, oh, like when so you see them at the shows. They do sometimes, but I've, I think I have to put up with the frat well, kids. Well, so how do, you, how do you avoid the Billy Corgan, Kurt Cobain sort of inner narrative about you know, when you get this success. Well, what was their inner narrative? What do you think their inner narrative was? How would you, how would you, someone think of your Billy, generation look at it? I don't know enough about Billy Corgan. I feel like he had a quite, quite different inner narrative from yes, Kurt Cobain. Certainly. Well, they both had Courtney in yeah. the conversation. But I mean, I think that my, part of it is just my personality that makes me different from them. But I think also coming up in, in a generation where those narratives were very clearly visible like the the narrative of the rock star who is super talented and gets it all and then loses it, you know, and, and can't keep control of it and has a tragic ending. You know, these were all stories that I heard many times growing up. You know, sure. Brian Wilson, Sid Barrett, Kurt Cobain, and even Jeff Mangum, you know, New Tomorrow yeah, Hotel, course. all in their different ways, you know, just sort of musical powerhouses whose power was just too great for them and they couldn't deal with it. And that, that affected me because, you know, I was a musician coming up and I needed a model of, of working on music where it, you know, it lasted my entire lifetime. It didn't just peter out uh, after I made one great thing. Um, it seemed Prince was someone one could look to. And then, Prince, yeah. I mean, it seemed that Prince was someone one could look to who did exactly what you're talking about. Right. And, and, and that's what I end, did. Yeah. I started looking towards, not Prince specifically, uh, unfortunately, perhaps, but uh, not Prince specifically, but other artists who did make a career out of it, who, who had talent and were able to sustain it throughout a career. And actually, uh, Frank Sinatra is someone I was looking at. I, read his biography when I was re- finishing up Teens of Denial, and that ended up shaping the album as well. Did you read the letter he wrote, George Michael? I don't think... Was that later in his life? You gotta read... Okay. He wrote... 
all on this subject. He wrote a letter. You know, George Michael is he was in this band Wham, right? Yeah, and then he was a gigantic. He was a huge at the in the era when people were selling twenty million albums. He was the biggest mm-hmm. star. And then he started complaining about the way he was getting covered in the press. And Sinatra wrote this incredible letter to him about the burden of being a star and it. ripping him. It's you would love it. Yeah, I, hopefully it'll be in the book because I read James Kaplan's biography, which was just the first half of his life, and now the second half is out, and I'm making my way through it now. Right. So use you, you, you know. Um, I'm not certain he's an example of like a holistically good person. Someone oh, yeah. who kept that's, who kept that's himself holistically now, good right. during the process. I need to find next my next step is to find a model who did that and was also a good person. I think you have though cuz I, I was when I the other thing that happened to me when I was so I get into the the record and I'm I am not exaggerating no hyperbole, you know, I I couldn't stop listening to it and I mean, my Twitter followers uh, just saw me like not shutting up, and I g- gave it to every friend of mine, and 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 then I went backwards, and I heard the Michael Stipe lyric, oh yeah, uh, on uh, the record before, and what's the lyric? It's about I fell I mi- about when taking- I was in love or when I was a kid, I fell in love with Michael Stipe. I took lyrics out of context and thought he must be speaking to me. Right. So when I was nineteen, Michael Stipe's music saved my like that's what saved my life mm-hmm. was Michael Stipe's music. And um, that band is my favorite band of, of all time. And I heard that line. I felt this deep connection to you for that for that reason. But and I was thinking about this because he had a moral authority right from the beginning because he wasn't bullshitting his audience. Mm-hmm. And you're smiling because I know you don't want to bullshit your audience right, yeah. either. And I was thinking about it because yesterday Stipe made an Instagram, uh, and he's got the huge beard now, and and, and he made an Instagram about Chelsea Manning. And unlike many other rock stars of his generation who've sort of used, however they've used their their fame for causes, it always sort of refracts back and you can sense what they really wanted was it to uh, somehow serve them. Yeah. But Stipe, because of the way that he managed his fame, the way he interacted with his fans, he's earned, he has the moral authority that I'm a 50-year-old dude and I'm not looking at musicians for that. But I will watch and think about what Michael says in such uh-huh. a serious way. Yeah. And I think it seems to me that that he's a, he is a good model for you. You're you? right. I, I hadn't really considered that explicitly, but it is something where more and more I'm, I'm returning to REM as sort of a model for that sort of thing. It's funny because, you know, they are one of the musicians I knew a lot about as a kid. I read a lot about REM. And... You know, I, I knew that the, they had this long sort of career, you know, and they were successful at what they did. I got burnt out on them for a while because um, a lot of the stuff I had connected with just felt like, um, you know, lyrically there wasn't as much substance as I thought there was. Um, I do think that, that Stipe writes some good stuff and some bad stuff. And uh, I was focusing on the bad stuff and saying, like, well, maybe they did sell out after all. But, you know, now I'm coming back to it, and, you know, I don't think that they did. Um, No, because you can go to, like, an automatic for the people. You can go to, like, Try Not to Breathe. Mm -hmm. There's, You know, there are many songs, Night Swimming, on that album. Yeah, I mean, I think they did a very good job of balancing being a commercial rock act and being themselves still. You know, there's, you know, the proof is in the music, I think. And they just did what they did for far longer than they really 
anyone had any reason to expect them to and that's impressive but yeah but the other way in which i was thinking about it was their fourth album was life search pageant and the three albums before that they're very comfortable being in the murk and hiding michael hid and they'd use background vocals over his stuff they would use reverb in a way that would make him seem far away and then life search pageant would had don gaiman produce it and there was this clarity of the, I was thinking about the thing you're saying about hearing your drums in a certain, like suddenly, you know, the drums were crisp mm-hmm. uh, and Michael's voice was really out front and you could really hear what he was singing about. And when I listen to Teens of Denial, in a way, it fe- even though you're very young doing this, it mm-hmm. feels because you'd made so many albums by yourself and you one goes back to those albums and you're, I hear somebody, you may have had all these, this like level of purpose that you have now then, but I'm not sure you were as willing to really be naked about it as you absolutely yeah i mean when car seat headrest started one of my major models was rem and i wrote lyrics the way that i i understood michael stipe is writing lyrics just taking them from anywhere and you know the, those early albums there aren't really any coherent lyrics it's just words being sung and maybe that's the, you know that's part of the a big part of the reason why in the following years i kind of rejected rem because i was rejecting that mode of writing basically i wanted to that find part of my, yourself too right it. and i mean you have to kill the i mean harold bloom talks about the anxiety of influence you have to in trying to recreate that shit, you kind of have to destroy it to yeah. make good work, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, to move on in my own career, I, I guess I kind of had to reject, you know, that whole idea. Um, Has he reached out to you? No, and he I, he's not obligated to. I it'd be cool if one day we we talked, but um, yeah, celeb encounters uh, are never my forte. Sure. So. Yeah. So. Let's let's tell the story a, a little bit, Will. I know if it doesn't feel like you're just repeating yourself no, too no, much, no. but I do think it, you know the model. So I, I did go back. Jason sent me a bunch of old articles about you, my, my producer of this, and and I went back and read them and loved the idea of the unsolicited demo tapes and and found that song online. Uh, oh yeah, and heard uh, the fuck it's fuck fuck merge. What's it called? Fuck fuck merge records. Fuck merge records. And your success is such a testament to somebody who didn't let the gatekeepers stop them. Mm-hmm. You know, the most common question we all get once you achieve any level of success an artist, working artist, is like, well, how do I get an agent? How do I get through the door? How do I get someone to sign me? And although it's clear from that music that you wanted to be part of the lineage of people who made records yeah. for record companies that yeah. mattered. <laughs> You didn't let that stop you. So can you just talk about how it all happened for you, how it began, and and how you decided not to wait for the gatekeepers? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it was a generational thing again where, you know, the bands, I was paying attention to narratives of bands. And one thing a lot of them had in common is that they didn't wait for gatekeepers either. They were out making their own stuff and like, you know, stuff like the Elephant Six Collective where... I, I get that was sort of I think my ideal in high school is to just sort of that's back do to neutral milk neutral milk hotel neutral milk hotel which yeah. is just kind of do it yourself within your friend group and just be making music you know it, that uh, embodies that social sphere and isn't a part of something larger but you know can become accessible by a larger group and so I sort of became you know in retrospect I kind of became the center of that own sort of thing in in my friend group you know where was, was this was this it was in, in virginia. virginia yeah and 
it ended up being a, a lot of Leesburg folks and me, um, you know, who are still some of my closest friends. You know, I'd be recording my own stuff and also recording their stuff. And in high school, we we collaborated a lot on music. And um, but when we we went our different ways, we still kept in touch in that aspect as far as I was producing music for my friend Leo, who is currently going under the name American Holly, and my friend Degnan, who has been under the name Naked Days for a while. And it was kind of our way of staying in touch, basically, having things to do as friends, and it gave us a reason to meet up when we weren't in the same But your ambition was greater than that, But my ambition was greater than that. Um, You know, I I had the the pie-in-the-sky dreams, I guess, of being, you know, a musician who was known to the world. And, you know, I always, it just seemed like, you know, I didn't know anything about the music industry. I didn't know how to promote myself. I didn't know who I needed to know to sort of make it happen. All I knew was how to make music. So I figured I didn't want to know, I didn't want to do any of that other stuff. So I figured I would just focus on making the best music I could and doing it as much as possible. Right. You think that you had in your head that, I mean, although you did go to a good college, like you did go to college and you did study as you, as, as you say, but you would determine that no matter what this, I found a quote of yours somewhere um, where you basically said like, you were not going to be good at anything else. Was right. that a choice? I mean, if you're a very bright guy, you could have done a lot of things. <laughs> did you make a choice at a certain point? Like, I'm not going to give myself an escape hatch? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the choice or the the lack of a choice was presented to me. I just I just don't think I could be happy doing anything other than art. You know, music in specifically is something I chose because I I think I was best at it or it was easiest to do. You know, I, I've written stories or whatever and and done some art, but it seemed that I was the strongest at making music on my own. So that's kind of what I ended up focusing on for my career. But, um, there was something that was inherent in me that I always had to be making art. And, you know, even if regardless of how I was supporting myself or getting money, that was tied to my innermost sense of identity was artist. How'd you know you weren't crazy? (laughs) No one knows they're they're not crazy, but I mean, it was really a self-fulfilling thing. You know, I'd look back on the music I created and say, you know, Everyone else is crazy because this is great. Yeah, you were able. So you were able to do that. You yeah. were able to. Now, when you first, like I know um, when I first write a scene um, for 24 hours after I write it, you can't fucking tell me anything about Like I'm certain it's fucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Then I know if I give myself 48 hours, I can look at it and go, oh, there's one line in the whole mm-hmm. five pages that works and go back. So what's your sort of win how, what's the practice you've developed to allow yourself to evaluate where you are and know, okay, well, this is good or this needs to be better or I don't quite have the songs for mm-hmm. an album yet. Like, how, how does your process like that work? Well, I have a, a good friend who's been listening, probably started listening the first year I, I was doing Car Seat Headrest and he has become my voice of reason, basically. I will present an, uh, something to him and if he says it sucks and it offends me, then I'll know that it does suck because yes. I'm not admitting it. If you get angry, yeah, if you get really if angry. If he says it sucks and it genuinely surprises me, then I'll say, 
maybe we're just on a different page here and I need to work on it to make it clear what's going on. But, um, yeah, it's, is this friend a musician? He is an artist. He he draws more than he does music, but he's just sort of, he's, he's, he's he's a good consumer. He, he knows what he likes and he knows when something's wrong, basically. And those are very important people to have, I think, in an artist's life. You know, people who can listen or look at your art and understand what makes it good and understand what prevents it from being better and who who aren't afraid to tell you that. You know, I think that there are plenty of artists my age who just don't sort of have that person in their life because... Um, Especially like within the same age group, there's sort of a taboo against doing that. But this this guy is a little older, so he's you know he you comes mean a taboo from a different... against being um, c- critical in the sense critical, of a yeah. real cri- uh, in the sense of uh, applying a rigorous critical perspective, right? And I mean, it, yeah, and it's, it gets weird when you're friends with someone and suddenly you you say, "Let's stop being friends for a minute, and I'll be your critic." Um, but yeah, we live that at home. All four of us are writers. So we have to do that. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, my wife and my two kids who are 16 to 20, um, all of us write and all of us are published. And mm-hmm. like, so there's this constant having to put those hats on and figure out, well, he needs you to react this way mm-hmm. to get the message across. Well, they need you to react that way to get the me- And it's com- complex right. relationship to right. sustain. And, um, and I guess I'm wondering for you, um, you know, you're becoming a really big star and you sold out two shows in New York tonight, last night and t- tonight. Mm-hmm, yeah. And there's a like sort of something that sometimes happens is like being rational and in control are great. And then being controlling is bad. Right. And what starts to happen is like people become sycophantic around somebody who can afford them access to stuff. It's mm-hmm. Not that you're going to start buying, you know, you're not going to, be Elvis in red because you've read those stories and you know not to do that. Right. But what starts to happen is in your wake, a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of stuff occurs in your wake as this all is happening to you mm-hmm. that can change the people around you. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Cause you're in it, you're in the jet stream. If I can just mix my metaphors from water to the air, but you're in the jet stream right now, man. How is it feeling? Well, I mean, as far as the wake is concerned, I I try and be conscious of it and make sure that the things that happen to the people around me are good, you know, and that the the waves that they get off of me are good waves. You know, and now I try and bring, you know, the energy of the critic to my artist friends and I try and help them out in the way that I was helped when I was just starting off in my career. And, um... You know, I I think that just by seeing the other people around me, seeing what they might need, and seeing what I can give them. um, So you're trying to remain outwardly focused to the as opposed to only sort of taking it all. Yeah, and I mean, like, are you able to enjoy this thing happening to you without? Like, are you taking? Are you able to? I think that's the thing is that I enjoy it most when I see the people that I care about benefiting from it. You know, it's more about that than when I get a nice hotel or whatever, or when I meet a celebrity, I like being able to see, you know, someone else, maybe an artist friend gets more attention because I retweet them now than I would, than they would have if I had retweeted them last year. Sure. 
and you know it's stuff like that where i can do stuff you know but do you allow yourself to get off on like so adam driver came to your show the other uh night in atlanta and i saw you tweeted it or instagrammed it which is great and a great connective thing and great for like the brand and the whole deal but do you allow yourself to like there's a balance right self-abnegation is fine and probably useful but also accepting even as a stoic might but accepting the good stuff and Mm -hmm. allowing it to like yeah. allow a little endorphin release every once in a Absolutely. while. Absolutely. I mean, when the good stuff is actually good as an experience, that's for sure. And I, you know, I allowed myself a little bit of a gloating period when I met Adam Driver and Channing Tatum and Daniel Craig at that concert. But, you know, the actual reality of it is that, you know, we heard beforehand they were coming. We played, a, like, we went all out on the set. <laughs> <laughs> impress them and we then afterwards we got taken up to the balcony to meet them and it was just a typical awkward like oh you didn't know what did you not know what to do with your hands as Ricky right, Bobby yeah. would say basically yeah like uh yeah I immediately got wedged into a corner with Adam Driver and it was just the the most a- empty content uh, you couldn't do it small right. talk conversation it's, so hard. it's the and worst he, he asked me where I was from three times in a row and then I was, I just started looking around, trying to get. Well, it's hard to hear it. in those places. Yeah, it's it's just, and it, I'm sure you were mumbling. You probably I was were mumbling. mumbling. He was mumbling. He was drunk. They were all drunk, and you weren't. I wasn't drunk. Do you drink when you play? Um, a little bit. So, I mean, sometimes I I never make a plan on doing it. Like sometimes I'll ha- I'll get drunk before a show, and it'll be great, and I'll be like. I should do this every night before a show. And then the next night I just crash before a show because I've had two drinks. And then I'm like, I'm never going to drink before a show again. But uh, in a, in general, I just go with the flow. Right. But try not with to whatever feels drunk. like the thing that'll get you. Yeah. Because obviously, or, or it seems to me like that your level of um, the way in which your analytic would could force you to approach the live shows with the same kind of need for perfection. Yeah, that drives drove Brian Wilson crazy. Yeah, uh, and Phil Spector. I mean crazy also it's funny you're like well i'm much more like phil than brian but both motherfuckers went nuts <laughs> i mean neither paradigm that's true. is like the uh, different sorts of crazy though y- yes yeah uh, one he, because he probably in a weird way like when he couldn't quite do it anymore mm-hmm. phil right he it it all consumed yeah him. i mean phil phil was i think in in a less complicated sort of crazy and that his ego just kept expanding yes. until it was socially unacceptable. Whereas Brian was more of a, you know, the, the weights are unbalanced and, and something's going to fall. Yes. Um, and something did fall eventually. But um, I, I guess the reason I brought up Billy Corgan, cause I was just going to make a joke, like in Billy Corgan somewhere right in between those two guys. Oh yeah. Because you can't, but, but I, the reason I brought him up was because of the level of, control and calculation of the first three or four smashing pumpkins albums Mm. where this sort of you know gish and siamese dream were these very certain very particular things very alternative and uh difficult in certain ways each one becoming less difficult Mm -hmm. and then melancholy you know you could have written tonight tonight (laughs) right i mean that this sort of ability to recognize uh to go big Mm -hmm. to be grandiose to serve a very direct purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if tonight, tonight is a kind of a rewriting of uh, born to run, 
then, you know, Killer Whales is sort of a rewriting of Tonight Tonight in a certain way, sort of structurally and what, what it does. But is it important to you to, to, to have a relationship with them? With, with the, the audience. audience? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's important for me to understand where they're coming from, I think. And what does it, that mean? Go further. Um, well, I guess it's important because, um, you know, if, if I just see reactions to the album from, it's hard to talk about an audience with Teens of Denial because there are many different sorts of people listening to it. Yeah, the thing. I'm, that's what I'm really interested but, in. So, define that a little. What do right. you mean? So, Teens of Denial, I mean, Car Seat Headdress came up and the the fan base took a certain sort of shape where it was young people spent most of their time online. Alone. Um, alone. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, th- they were very lonely people and um, they latched on to the music as something that could help them with that. And because of that, th- there was sort of an image of me projected, which I didn't necessarily like. You, well, you mean alone, also alone or in your bedroom? Because that right. was the myth. Is- and I mean, that's, you know, that was accurate. But there's the thing is, there's no room for growth, I feel like, when you see that projection. Right. So, you know, it was important for me to see why people were projecting that to avoid just like being angry about it um, and to understand that it had less to do with me than it had to do with them. And that if I wanted to, I could grow out of that. Basically, yes. you weren't East river pipe, you know, which was this guy, Fred Cornog who only made his records in the eighties and his, cause he was oh, yeah. terribly afraid to go out. He made these incredible albums. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're small, they're, they're sort of miniatures, like from an art yeah. standpoint, his songs, he's a miniaturist in a mm-hmm. way. You're not a miniaturist. You can do mm-hmm. that, but it's not like where you live. Yeah. But he couldn't leave. I knew him a little. Right. He couldn't leave. That right. wasn't, and like one could think that was what you were doing, but that wasn't right. who you were. Right. Yeah. I mean, as far as an audience is concerned, I think it is more important for an artist to know what other artists have done than to know what their audience wants. Yes. Um, because an audience, you know, that's what an audience does is do what I just described is to, to latch onto an image of an artist and use that as sort of a fixed projection. And the artist needs to recognize what that projection looks like, but they also need to know how to move past it. Um, You know, that it's not them, that they can do whatever they want and that to continue making good art, they need to be able to move past it basically. Actually, there's a show called Steven universe, which I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't watched it, but I know what it is. But It's a cartoon it. show. And the first season, I'm thinking about it because I'm angry about it, because um, the first season was so good, and it clearly had the sort of, like, auteur approach, where someone knew exactly what the story was throughout the whole season, and the characters fell into line there. And what happened was it got latched onto by a certain fan base, which is kind of, kind of like the car seat fan base. They're internet people who are deeply attached to the art that they like. The old car seat audience. You're old car about. seat. Yeah. The car seat audience up through teens of style. Right. Yeah. And what happened is there was sort of a feedback loop between the audience and the creators and they stopped caring so much about the narrative that had been in place and about the character development that had been in place. And they just started feeding off of the audience attention and saying, you know, 
here's a character that you guys might like. Here's another character that you guys might like. What would happen if this character was wearing a cool jacket? Right. And, um, and that didn't make sense to you because you wanted the authorial voice behind the right. Um, you wanted an authorial control. And the, yeah, and I I feel like more people do want that. The, you know, it's just it's not on the audience to express that desire. The audience is allowed to say whatever they like about the art. Yes, and the artist needs to to have a strong presence of mind, basically, and to say, okay, you can have this, but you can't have this because there are things that are more important. Well, yeah, it's like why um, the Cone brothers will never go to a Lebowski fest. Okay, yeah. Because they won't, right? They made that thing. We all took it and made it ours. Right. But it's not theirs any... They they seem to know it's not theirs anymore. Yeah, they're... But what they have to do is make the next thing. Right. And then we can either respond to that or not. Right. But they can't actually engage with why we watch it 30 times. Yeah, I mean, I think the Cone brothers is a perfect example. Because you're a formalist in a way. I just am realizing talking to you, like from an artistic uh, standpoint. Define what formalism. Well, formalism, understanding uh, that you're you're engaged in a, in this formal creation of art, and as the creator of it, you're um, you're aware of what came before, and you're aware of the medium you're working in, and the way in which you want to control mm. that medium, and you're not in a group. You're not making group art. Yeah, beyond your own immediate. Band, and I know it's not a very exact definition of formalism, but in the way that the the cones are, um, are yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because because what I make now are, are, are genre albums, I guess. You know, Teens of Denial is very a rock and roll album, and but to, that doesn't mean that Carsey Headdress is a rock and roll band to me. It means that right now we're playing rock and roll music because that's the album we just put out. But I I don't want to be a rock and roll band. And, um, you know, we put out this record because we like rock and roll. And I like the idea of a rock and roll album. But the next album we put out, I don't think it's going to be that way. And I think that we'll do a lot of different albums that, that sort of... Yeah, it's it's more. I think we about used it form. well in art history. Formalism is the study yeah. of art by uh-huh. analyzing and comparing form and style. The way objects are made in their purely visual aspects. In painting, formalism emphasizes compositional elements such as color, line, shape, texture, and other perceptual aspects. In the way the Coen Brothers are, and in the way that yeah. I think that that you are. I, I was also. I'm wondering, have you read any or a decent amount of um, the Japanese author Murakami? No, I haven't. So you, I it it, it might be worth you checking out because he very consciously. What books did he? Read? Well, th- well, in- Norwegian Wood is his okay, teens yeah, of that's I his teens it. of denial. Okay, and that was his fourth book, right? And it's when he made a kind of a decision to become available. And it, the first books are insular and interior, mm-hmm. much more so. And he's playing with form and uh, in and they're inc- they're in- incredible. I mean, um, right from the masterpieces, but. I mean, the first one's not a masterpiece. It's a young, a young person who's realized he's a novelist and, and tries. But, but you can see in it the roots of, of what happens. And North, Norwegian Woody, he blew up. And he's never written another book. He's the big, m- most popular, I think, non-American writer in the world. Okay. But he's never, he's never done Norwegian Wood too. He won't do it. He right. continues to just make his work for himself. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm sure, what you're hoping you're, you're going to do. But how do you deal with, so like, my so tonight my my the four of us in my family have not gone to a concert together 
in years. We've gone, a bunch of us, we've all seen Jason Isbell. That's the last artist who united us in a mm-hmm. way. But like, um, I was thinking about this and I, I wrote, I actually wrote this down, which is like, um, my daughter who's 16 loves Casey Musgraves and Pistol Annie's and my son is 20 vampire weekend and Vince Staples and run the jewels. And like me, it's R.E.M. Dillon and the Pixies and run the jewels. And my wife loves Springsteen and the national. And I was like, Oh, um, I think I can get tickets to car seat headrest Friday night. And like everybody had individually emailed me asking me to get like, so we're going to your show tonight uh-huh. as a, as a, as a family. Nice. And are you seeing, do you see people of all ages and what, how does that hit you? Did you assume, if, did you think 50 year old dudes like me and 16 year old girls like my daughter <laughs> were all going to rally around this album? Um, it kind of wasn't that much of a surprise to me because, you know, it's it's a love letter to the records of the 60s and 70s and and also to bands like Nirvana in the 90s. The Pixies. Um, and uh, Pixies actually weren't as much of an influence to me. I just, so it's, well, the Pixies then refracted through Nirvana. Right, refracted through Nirvana. <laughs> no, right? I mean, <laughs> no, yeah. the replacements refracted through but Nirvana. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a pop record, basically. You know, it's, it's another refraction. And... Um, and, you know, I always thought that my music could appeal to people like that. I didn't necessarily uh, play that up because, you know, it, it's not cool. in Leesburg, it would be mainly my dad who was paying attention. Um, but, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it made total sense to me because I was, I was never really listening to the same music growing up that the people around me were. I was listening to much older music and... Um, and writing based off of that. So, um, how would you have answered the question in my tweet? Um, other than by your own name, if I would have said, which bands and artists are playing aggressive, beautiful alternative music and are really smart and really mean it. I don't know, man. There's, I, I feel like music is like the patch of music that I'm working in right now is in kind of a dry spell. You know, I see a lot of good art. Most of it, and maybe it's just just my personality, but but most of the really cool art being created by people my age are is not music. What is it? It's it's kind of cross media. You know, people are doing stuff online, and it's comics, it's art, it's writing, and there's music involved too. Um, but the barriers are kind of breaking down between it, and it just becomes you know some people are really good at creating stuff. And I think that that should be the model that people are going for. You know, I think that artists, there's a trend of artists who weren't doing any one particular thing. They were doing a load of things well. And now we're sort of more rigid in our definitions of what an artist can do. But, um, well, yeah, I was thinking also about, like, I don't know whether these were not, not necessarily influences, but I was trying to think about albums with similar ambitions, creative ambitions, not, mm-hmm. but also creative and commercial ambitions. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of, that's why, you know, I was thinking of Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, but I was also thinking of American Idiot and Joshua Tree. And okay, yeah. I did, would, did those bands hit you at all? Like, was Billy Joe anyone that you ever looked Green at? Green Day, absolutely. American Idiot, um, was one of my favorite albums in middle school. And when I, started writing lyrics regularly after that you know i got i got the spiral bound notebook and i was writing all my lyrics in all caps because so I he would was read the green oh, that's day. great yeah 
So that the, the the scope and ambition of that album hit you. You understood what he was trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, people are like, no one writes these long songs, but but he did on that yeah. album. And so I do see a kinship for well, me yeah, from it, the outside. I see a kinship. It's great because he was definitely listening to the same records I listened to growing up. You know, he like which? Th- there's such a, a who vibe to American Idiot. You know, the Pete Townsend rock opera. It's all there, and. I think the, the probably his main model was Quadrophenia, which I think tells a very similar narrative. But I could hear, you know, elements of like a quick one while he's away and there, you know, just. Um, yeah, because Teens, teens in Denial, which is uh, ostensibly about this character who's Joe, who's a mm-hmm. senior in high school. You know, so there are these similarities. But what's interesting is with, with American Idiot, it was quite clear that Billy wasn't other than in um, the song about his dad, but that Billy wasn't the character. Yeah. With this album, you're allowing, that's what I meant about the metafictional aspect. I mean, you are allowing yourself to poke out. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, the um, cause, cause for me, I think that the rock opera is like the farthest form of that, of making that kind of record. And it's a little too far for me. You know, my favorite who album is who's next, which perfect album. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's built off of the failed concept of a, of a, of a rock opera. But because of that, you know, because the concept didn't work, they went back and just put these songs out and all the songs on it are great. So for me, it's like, if I want to make a rock opera, I I would intentionally make a failed rock opera. That's just a, a collection of songs that that are good, basically. And um, and so and so that I think conceptually a part of that is I'm not building up the concept to the part to the point where it's divorced from me. You know, I'm keeping it close to my heart and um, not not making a narrative out of it so much as you know combining combining my own emotions with some sort of narrative gesture and and how when when you know when when one listens to john driver's killer killer whales and tries to parse the fuck you're writing about you know now i mean bob dylan made it a point to never speak to it Mm. i think your technique is to speak to it but um how rigorous are you about being honest about what the stuff really means to you does that matter to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I was—I'm uh, not a huge fan of Dylan's persona. As far as I don't know why anyone ever listened to me. Like, well, yes, no, you right. do. Yeah, come well, on, come on! You're the smartest person who ever picked up a guitar, <laughs> right. Bob. That's um, why they listen to you. Yeah, you know, I—I—I I, I, I prefer artists who speak about what they're doing seriously. You know, the Leonard Cohen model, basically, where you can talk about it. Paul Simon too. Paul Simon too. Yeah. Um, and you know it, when i when i discuss music i tend to discuss it more on a, a, in an intellectual level than on an emotional level just cuz you know that's it's well, easy. the visceral part is there right we feel that that's the right. whole visceral for thing. me music is the way of expressing that and when we're having a conversation that's when you know conceptual and intellectual elements come out of my mouth basically is part of it that you know that you're going to be able to engage in that cuz like uh, you know putting out these songs that are in a certain way, as you, they're, they can be on first couple of listens inscrutable lyrically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the world we live in now is that that information is available. Right. People can go to Genius and actually see 
Do you ever have the desire to get on there and correct Genius when it's wrong? Oh, well, I mean, I I still need to put up the annotations for Teens of Denial. But yeah, well, they're I, all up there, but you just haven't done it yourself. Um, that's what I mean. I, I went... Th- that's slipped out of my hands because I, I had them all. Do it. I, I do need to do it probably by the end of the year. But it does frustrate me, you know, when I see someone with <laughs> Definitively a, a, stated a, real, a real lackluster definition or, or um, explanation. I've enjoyed hearing people talk about fill in the blanks, too, and the way in which their own interpretations. And now you've spoken about it, too, what it means. I was realizing another album, which I don't know if you know, but uh, do you – which is one of those, like, it's not really a rock opera, but it's united uh, around a theme, which is Lou Reed's New York album. Okay, I haven't Have you ever it. heard it? No. You, it's, um, you might, I don't know if you like him or if his voice is too annoying for you, but it's... Lou Reed's growing on me slowly. New York is sort of like the late-ish period album okay. that he was past the drugs. He was sober and not annoyingly newly sober, <laughs> but just had a sober way to yeah. look at the world and wrote about... um living in New York in a, in a, when the city was th- right before people started making Disneyland out of it. And hmm. uh, it's kind of a brutally honest. And I, I just, I think you might take it. There's a, okay. a small song in there called last great American whale about whale that's like uses this metaphor of the whale. Okay. Um, in a very interesting way. Mm. Cause it means two different in the song. It means both versions of whaling and the, and the whale. Okay. Uh, and uh yeah, as a as a guy who writes about right. whales <laughs> himself, um, you, you you might take it. I'm just looking through. I have to let you go, but I'm just quickly looking through to see oh, the okay. things I wrote. Are we out of time already? Well, we've spent an hour. Is, what do you want to? Is there anything that we should talk about that we uh, haven't? I hate that question. Yeah, but um, <laughs> me too. I hate asking it. But you were like, "Oh, are we out of time?" So I would. No, I just I I enjoy conversing. Yeah, do man. this for hours. Me too. Um, for real, and and uh, I'm not going to say what or or how, but your music. I will say this to people listening: that your music does appear in season two of Billions, and I'm so glad about it. Uh, I'm so excited that we're going to get to for people who maybe still haven't heard of you by then. Though I'm sure you'll be playing huge rooms by then. Uh, how long's the tour going? Um, how long has it been going? About how long two... is it going to continue? Oh, uh, we've been at it two weeks. It'll be two more weeks before we finish. And then are you going to start making the next record or are you going to go We've already out started. Again? How deep are you? Uh, we did one recording session. Um, not that deep. <laughs> It'll be a while. But, uh, you played a bunch of the summer. You played a bunch of festivals this summer. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you, are, are you now going to start on the record in, in earnest or are you going to keep going out? Like as this album keeps taking off. Well, it's, it's going to be juggling a few too many things at once, but I'm going to keep working on the new record while we continue to do shows next year. Hopefully less shows just because, you know, it was, it was more than a full-time schedule this year and we, we could use a bit of a rest next year. Lastly, did the people at Merge ever apologize to you no i mean i i didn't ask them to it was a, a moment of rage Have you run into them ever i someone who now works for beggars used to work for merge and and i think i feel like they might have reached out at one point but you know it's it's all water under the bridge well if uh if teens in denial is a failed rock opera by intention then i'll say to you what i've never said to a guest i hope you keep failing yeah, and too. uh uh, I cannot wait to hear what you do next. I can't wait to hear, uh, to see the concert tonight. And man, I'm really grateful that you came and had this conversation. It was great. Thanks. Everybody go listen to Teens of Nile and Teens of Style and go find the old Bandcamp recordings. 
And Will's story is in a lot of magazines. I actually didn't end up having him tell the whole thing. He was in a bedroom making the music for himself, <laughs> putting on band camp, and then people start going fucking ape shit for it. That's the story. Um, uh, Will Toledo, thanks, man. Thank you. You can find Will online at uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Carsey Headdress. And then you have what? Not Car- what is it on Instagram? Oh, on Instagram, it's not Carsey Headdress. Clever. And uh, someone took Carsey Headdress. And uh, I'm at Brian Koppelman. And if you want to email me. Um, you can email themomentbk at gmail.com and I will read it and try to respond. But during the shooting season, it's hard to respond. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.